The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, as we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And in this text, we are going to read about the second sign that Jesus performed after he began his earthly ministry. Some of you who read ahead in the Gospel of John, you know that in John chapter 4, verse 54, it says that after Jesus healed the official son, John there identifies that healing as the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so you might be asking, well, if that's the second sign there identified in John chapter 4, why is this morning's text designated as the second sign? Well, that designation that we read in John chapter 4 summarizes Jesus' ministry in all of Cana. You might remember that the first sign was also in Cana at the wedding where he turned water into wine. That was the first sign in Cana. But this morning's text takes place in Jerusalem. It takes place at the temple. And uh, when Jesus performs this sign, it is specifically performed in Jerusalem. And so we might say that this is the second sign that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry as he had been identified as the Messiah. But it was the first sign that he performed in Jerusalem. Now what do Uh, signs mean? What is this word that we find throughout the Gospel of John? Well, as we noted last week, signs are intended to point beyond themselves to something very important, uh, something greater than the signs themselves. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he purposely chose seven important things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and he included them in his Gospel. And he tells us why toward the end of his gospel in chapter 20. He writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, these signs reveal something very important about Jesus. They reveal his glory. They are things that Jesus did that reveal that he is the Messiah sent from God. And interestingly, the sign that we will learn about this morning of clearing the temple is not a miraculous sign, but it still very clearly revealed Jesus as the Messiah. So the signs reveal Jesus' glory, reveal his true identity. But John says They also had an apologetic purpose. They had a persuasive purpose. They were intended to persuade people, namely the Jews, to believe in Jesus so that they might be saved. I want to read again what John wrote in chapter 20 toward the end of his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He says, which I have not recorded. But these seven are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So again, we might say that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is building a case for why Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John, as one of the apostles, wants us to know Jesus, and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And so he records these very important things so that we might see what Christ did during his earthly life and see how those things benefit us. And then we might repent and trust in him for salvation. And so let's, with that in mind, let's read our text for this morning, beginning in uh, verse 13 of chapter 2. The Passover of, of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We learn first in our text this morning that God cares about how we worship him. We read beginning in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He left Cana and went up to Jerusalem. And and this uh, indication of where Jesus was at the present moment helpfully explains why Jesus reacted with such zeal when he entered the temple. We know that the Passover was one of the holiest seasons of the year for Israel. In fact, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, he says that during Passover in AD 65, 255,600 lambs were offered as sacrifices in the temple area. Imagine the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem during this season. As families gather, as pilgrims gather, sacrifices are being offered. So much religious activity So much ceremony, all of these sacrifices being offered to God by the priests on behalf of the families of Israel. You know, we would expect that when Jesus, therefore, entered the temple on that day, he would have found reverent worship and people striving to glorify God from their hearts. 
And yet we see in our text that when Jesus walked into the temple, what did he find? He didn't find reverent worship. He didn't find holiness. But he found instead sinful disobedience. We read in verse 14 that in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we need to understand that such buying and selling in Jerusalem during the Passover uh, was necessary. The Jews who went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover were required by God to offer sacrifices. And their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem was often very difficult. It was a difficult journey, and so bringing along animals and and things that needed to be sacrificed uh, was very difficult. So we read in Deuteronomy 14 that God had provided for the possibility that people living far away from Jerusalem who were unable to carry all the things that they needed for religious observance, they could uh, just convert their money there in Jerusalem and then could uh, acquire the goods that they needed in order to offer sacrifices to God. We also know that in Jerusalem, each Jew paid a temple tax at Passover, and the temple accepted only a certain type of currency, and so money changers were also present there in the temple. You know, it's like when you go on a long trip. We don't usually bring everything from home that we need on the trip. Sometimes we might say, you know, I don't have room in the car or I don't have room in the luggage, so I'll just buy uh, whatever else I need uh, once I get there. Well, it's similar for the pilgrims who went to Jerusalem for the feast. They would just buy the pigeons and the lambs, the oil and the salt that was needed, all the things necessary for making right offerings. And there's also evidence that the sellers and the traders who were there in the temple would offer these things, but they would offer them at an inflated prices. And so they would often gouge the pilgrims uh, of, of their money. They would take advantage of them. So when Jesus entered the temple that day, he identified this major problem. And the problem that he identifies is that there was buying and selling taking place inside the temple area. Inside this temple area that was to be devoted to the worship of God. Historically, this uh, buying and selling that Jesus witnessed that day was done outside of the temple courts. But it had only recently been moved into the temple courts, which was known as the Court of the Gentiles. This was a 35-acre area near the temple that was as close as Gentiles were allowed to get in their worship of God. And, And so the problem was that this is the area that the Jewish religious leaders had recently turned into a marketplace. This Gentile court should have been used by Israel to welcome the Gentiles. It should have been used to nurture faith in the one true God, to be used as a means to teach Gentiles about God's goodness and truth. But instead, around 30 AD, it had been turned into what Jesus witnessed that day, something that looked like a swap meet or a flea market. Instead of a house of prayer, it was a house of prophets. We see Jesus' passionate response there beginning at verse 15. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus says that the temple area was supposed to be a place of worship, a place where the scriptures are read, where sacrifices were offered, and where people came to lift up their hearts in prayer to God. Kent Hughes, he points out, and he healthily explains that when Jesus entered the temple, his eyes scanned the great court of the Gentiles. He saw sheep, pigeons, and oxen. It was a mess. There was no reverence. He also witnessed bartering, buying and selling, arguing over the weight of a coin. There was no reverent worship. The very thing that the temple was designed for was lacking. What Jesus witnessed that day was that many in Israel were spiritually dead. Many in Israel were spiritually dead. See, the dishonesty and the irreverence that Jesus saw outwardly in the temple area that day revealed that the hearts of many in Israel were far from God. And we know that because of the place where this story takes place within the Gospel of John. The very location of this story reveals uh, how many in Israel had departed from uh, their faith in God. This account of Jesus clearing the temple is sandwiched between several other accounts that revealed that many in Israel were spiritually dead, that they did not have true faith in God. And so let's take a quick look at what we've studied so far in John's Gospel to see how uh, this plays out. So in John chapter 1, for example, we learned about John the Baptist and the fact that he was administering a baptism of repentance in order to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And this was shocking to many in Israel because his was a baptism of repentance for Israelites and not just for Gentiles. See, John the Baptist, through his ministry, was identifying the fact that the Israelites also needed to repent, that they, too, were spiritually dead in their sin. Even the children of Abraham needed to be cleansed of sin. And then, last week, we studied Jesus' first sign at the wedding at Cana, when he turned the water into wine. And and do you remember what that sign represented? It was, remember, the water at the wedding was used for religious and ceremonial washings, and yet that water was powerless to cleanse the people of their sin, that no matter how much they washed their hands in that water, and no matter how much they washed their utensils in that water, it was ineffective to take away sin. Jesus was identifying the fact that the Judaism during his day was obsessed with ritual washing and cleanliness, that, but the fact that many in Israel were so focused on outward cleanliness that they missed the importance of a heart and mind that was devoted to the Lord. That without faith in Christ, no matter how much we wash, we can never wash away sin. 
We need God to transform our hearts by His Holy Spirit and to be washed in the cleansing blood of Christ in order to be forgiven. See, so John the Baptist revealed that Israel was dead in sin and needed to repent. And the stone filled jars with water at the wedding at Cana revealed that Israel was unable to cleanse itself of sin. And now when Jesus entered into what should have been the holiest place in the world, the temple in Jerusalem, he found only corruption and greed, not reverent, heartfelt worship. And we can also keep going in the Gospel of John because who does Jesus meet in the very next chapter? John chapter 3. He meets Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who held one of the most esteemed positions of religion and authority in Israel. And yet, even Nicodemus was spiritually barren. In fact, when Jesus began to speak to Nicodemus about spiritual matters, Nicodemus seemed clueless. Jesus said, are you a teacher of of Israel, and, and yet you don't understand these things? You're like talking to a pastor today, and that pastor not understanding what justification means and regeneration. Right? Jesus is identifying the problem throughout all of Israel. The fact that what he witnessed that day in the temple, see, was just a symptom of Israel's greater problem. And this is why we need to understand, loved ones, that God cares about how we worship him. He sees, even today, how many churches have turned from houses of prayer into houses of of profit. And by profit, I mean financial profits. The Lord sees that the churches, like the temple in Israel, the churches that exist today, some exist only to make others rich, such as prosperity, gospel, preachers. And, you know, this account of Jesus clearing the temple reveals that they will face harsh judgment. There are also churches that exist today that are only uh, there present for formality, to put on an outward show. They're very great at ceremonies, but they lack a heart devotion to the Lord. They just go through the motions. These are churches that do not observe true worship. In fact, we see that even the disciples, when they identified Jesus' reaction, they identified Jesus' reaction as zeal, his zeal for true worship. We read in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 69.9. It's a psalm written by King David. And you remember how passionate David was for true worship. In fact, he was so passionate for the worship of God and that it might exist to glorify God that he wanted to build a temple, a a beautiful house for God to replace the tabernacle, the tent that uh, had been uh, occupying the city. We read about his intentions in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet 
Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. See, something didn't sit right with David. He wanted to build God a temple suitable for his glory. He was zealous for God's house, for God's glory to be known. And when the disciples saw Jesus same zeal that day, they realized that here was the true David who had come to cleanse God's house. That zeal was revealed in Jesus' passion for God's house. By clearing the temple, he revealed that God cares about how we worship him. We must worship him in a way that is in accord with his word, and it must be from our heart and spirit and in truth. God cares about how we worship him. Secondly, we learn in our text that we can only worship God through Christ. Not only does God care how we worship him, but he cares how we approach him. We can only worship God through Christ. We read in verses 18 through 22 of our text that the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Well, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. By clearing the temple... That day, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. Malachi foretold that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus cleared the temple. And it says he will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi being the priests. And he will refine them like gold and silver. So in our text, we see that By answering the Jewish authorities in the way that he did, Jesus was revealing something very important about himself as the Messiah. Revealing the fact that he is now the true temple. See, this is the sign. What he did in the temple that day was pointing to something much greater, a greater spiritual reality, and that being the fact that he is the true temple. See, they thought that he was talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem, but he was instead referring to his own body. Now, loved ones, in what sense is Jesus the true temple? Well, we know that the temple in Jerusalem represented the place where God's presence was in a special sense. But with Jesus, he was God in the flesh. God was present in a much greater sense in Jesus' incarnation. The temple also revealed God to the world. It was the place that all the world at that time could look to and learn about the one true God. And that's true of Jesus in the greatest sense, isn't it? That Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That there is nothing you can learn about the Father that you have not learned by knowing me. I perfectly exegete the Father. And the temple was also the place where sacrifices were made. This is where we see the essence of 
why Jesus was the true temple. Because Jews came to the temple every year to do what? To sacrifice a lamb for their sins during Passover. See, they came to the temple because that's where sacrifices were made by the priests and received by God under the Old Covenant. And here is where Jesus points to his, his greatest presence as the true temple. Because as Richard Phillips notes, his death on the cross would serve as the place where sin is forgiven and, and where people are received into God's grace. There is no other way to be forgiven, to be accepted by God and received into his presence, but through Christ, because he is the true temple. And God demonstrated this, didn't he, in history? He demonstrated this by raising Jesus from the dead on the third day. But after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, it was never rebuilt. It was never raised again. Why? Because it became obsolete. It was part of the old covenant which has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So the assurance of Scripture and the testimony of our Lord is that He is the true temple. And and when we are united to Him by faith, the Bible says that the church is also a temple. And we are temples individually because He is present in us by His Spirit. Loved ones, this is why we can only approach God through Christ through the only one who can cleanse us of sin and and give us the perfect righteousness needed to stand in God's presence in worship. Do you know that this morning? Do you believe that? Because what we see lastly in our text is that God knows our hearts. He knows our sin. He knows our wicked thoughts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. See in verses 24 through 25 that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You know when we hear this truth that God knows our hearts, that God knows us even better than we know ourselves, a common response is well that's okay. Uh, because I'm not that bad. You know, I have nothing to hide. Uh, that response is a denial of our depravity. It's a denial of our sinfulness. Well, another common response when we hear that God knows everything about us and he knows our hearts, another common response, and this is the opposite one, is to respond with fear and dread was the response of Martin Luther before he understood the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther would spend hours and hours a day confessing his sin because he was in agony over the weight of his sin. Beloved ones, what's the biblical response? Because we know from Scripture that these are not proper responses to uh, the way that God knows us omnisciently. What's the biblical response? Well, the biblical response to the fact that God knows our every thought and he knows the inclination of our hearts is repentance. Not denial and not dread, but
but repentance. It's acknowledging our sin before the Lord and, and looking to Christ, the true temple in faith. This is why Jesus told his disciples to pray daily. He said, pray and forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. We are to pray daily for the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus is teaching us that in repentance we are called by God to continually acknowledge our sin. Because if we don't acknowledge our sin, we won't acknowledge our need for grace. This is the wonderful opening phrase of the hymn Amazing Grace. This is why it's so clear to us when it says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why is grace amazing? Because I was a wretch. I was lost in sin. It's amazing because it's greater than my sin. When we run to Christ with our sin, we do so knowing that with Him is forgiveness and that He is able to abundantly pardon and grant us sufficient grace. Why? Because He is the true temple who bore our sin in His body. Loved ones, this is why we begin our worship on every Lord's Day. We begin with a congregational confession of sin. Right in this prayer, we acknowledge our sinfulness, and we acknowledge also the assurance that we have of forgiveness. See, we don't deny our sin, and we also don't wallow in our sin or self-pity, but we confess our sin. And we receive again the confirmation that we are forgiven because of Christ and only because of Christ. And then we also have that moment in the service afterward for the private confession of our sins where you and I go before God and specifically confess our sins to God. It's at this point that the Westminster Confession of Faith is very helpful because in chapter 15 it states that people should not be content with a general repentance, but it is every Christian's duty to repent of his individual sins individually. Going before God and and acknowledging the specific ways that we have sinned against him, and then repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ that uh, our sins have been covered by his blood. Loved ones, God knows our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet he promises that when we come to Christ, the true temple, when we come to Christ by faith, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All glory and praise and honor be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals the glory of our salvation. We thank you for uh, your law that exposes our sin and that reveals to us our depravity. We thank you for the gospel that gives us uh, the way to be saved, that points us to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the true temple. Lord, we thank you for Christ who bore our sins in his body and who was raised on the third day.
and who is now seated in glory at your right hand, there interceding for us as our great high priest. What a wonderful, what a comforting thought that is. Lord, now having been saved by grace, we ask you to help us do all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, for your glory. Bless our work, our attitude, our thoughts, our words, and sanctify them for your use and glory in this world. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.